Everybody and welcome back to the Lawcast. This time, the march to WrestleMania continues as we cover the culmination of the boyhood dream of Shawn Michaels. The first time WrestleMania went Hollywood, it's one of the strangest WrestleManias. It's WrestleMania 12. Kush, what'd you think of this one? I, I'm almost reluctant to say this because of the enormity of the statement. But this is the worst show in the history of world wrestling entertainment. <laughs> I hate every fucking miserable, drawn-out second of this shitty-ass show. Well, you're not a man prone to hyperbole. <laughs> I don't know if I would go that far, but this is not a very good show. Um, I guess it lives and dies with how you feel about the main event. And I'm not as negative on it as you are, but I do think it's an overrated match. I mean, here's the thing, is that Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart are great wrestlers, and it's it's great to watch them wrestle. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a purity of wrestling. That's, that's super great. But everything about this show, going down match by match by match by match, is wrong. Everyone is being used wrong. Every character is just a complete perversion of what they should be. Every match result is stupid. Every it seems like every babyface should be a heel and every heel should be a babyface, and it's all culminated in a, an hour long match that does not need to happen. They're just in. It's a company in transition, and at this point, they've been in transition for years. But it's they were they were doing a Cleveland Browns thing at this point where they were just in a permanent state of rebuilding. Like yeah. every year it's a new direction, a new top guy, a new creative regime. They would they were not, they don't land on anything until 1998. It takes a long time for them to course correct. And this year I I think they're in a stronger place this year than they were last year. At least you know, things are a little more serious this year. And somehow they get a little stupider the year after this. But, you know, in 96, I feel like they're starting to move in the right direction. Like, Shawn Michaels is champion. Not the greatest world champion, but better than Diesel. Right. And at least they've made their decision. It really seems like, even more so than with Diesel, and even more so than with Brett, like, Sean's the guy who's been there all along. Sean is the apple of Vince's eye. Like oh he God. Loved, Vince McMahon loved Shawn Michaels so much. Like a son. Yes. Like this, this was the ultimate Vince McMahon play. Like he sees Shawn Michaels as his top guy. 
Isn't More Shawn Michaels the man Vince McMahon wants to be? Yes. Isn't I that mean, it? Let's be real. Shawn Michaels is the man we all want to be. Sure. Shawn Michaels, the character, is the ultimate man. Unfortunately, that results in other men hating the yes. shit out of him. I, we've discussed on this show before, to be a successful top babyface, you have to be kind of ugly so that you don't threaten male fans' sexuality. Or so cool, it just doesn't matter. In the case of The Rock. Yeah, The Rock is a special case. But every other top babyface in wrestling history was kind of ugly. Bruno San Martino. Ugly. Steve Austin. Hulk, Hulk Hogan. Hogan. Yeah. Yeah. These aren't super hot dudes. No. No, they're not. And then you <sighs> on the list of the failed champions, Kevin Nash, Shawn Michaels. Bunch of studs. Randy yeah. Orton. Roman Reigns. John Cena. Guys don't like him, man. Woo! Yeah. So, yeah, as the babyface merry-go-round continues, they're through with Bret Hart. They're through with Kevin Nash. This time it's Shawn Michaels' turn to uh, win it all, which I think after last year was pretty predictable. Like, it seemed, I mean, we talked last time about how much Shawn showed up Diesel in that match. It seemed pretty clear at that point. If you're going to pick who's going to be the guy on top next year, it would have been Sean. Uh, yeah, it's pretty clear that this is exactly what needs to happen. I mean, Shawn Michaels is a star and is arguably the only real star that they have access to. You got to go with Sean. Like, he seems like the guy completely. And Diesel, it's pretty clear at this point that Diesel's just not going to happen. <laughs> No. So they pull the plug on Diesel in the fall. He loses the belt to Bret Hart at Survivor Series. And then he doesn't do a full heel turn after the match, but he does jackknife Bret twice. He didn't do his proper heel turn until the Royal Rumble, but he turns into a tweener at that point and suddenly gets good again because suddenly they're not making him like their corporate cookie-cutter hack champion. And it's such a shame that it happens like right at the end. Yeah. Because the the diesel that you see here is cool as fuck. Yeah. Like, he's interesting. He's cutting great promos. That's the diesel you wanted. Yep. Yep. All he had to do was lose the, lose the belt, and then he got cool again, of course. But if he sticks around, he could have been a great champion. God, yes. He would like, have made a shitload of money in the Attitude Era. Let's be clear. Like, there was absolutely room for Scott Hall and Kevin Nash in Attitude Era WWE. That seems like an obvious statement. But, like, I don't believe that there was room for Bret Hart in that era. Like, he just wasn't going to fit. No. A lot of people weren't going to fit. But Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, perfect fits. So the rise of Shawn Michaels has been kind of the story of 1995. Um, won the Intercontinental title from Jeff Jarrett at uh, the second In Your House pay-per-view in July. Uh, successfully defended it against Razor Ramon at SummerSlam in a rematch of the WrestleMania 10 ladder match that was almost as good as the first time around. Um, then he hit some hard times, which I think actually helped his rise. He had... Uh, the incident in Syracuse where he got beaten up um, outside the bar by the unspecified number of Marines. How many Marines do you think it was? Probably like two, but in the story, it somehow always turns out to be more and more. Yes, like 30 Marines and what was it? Kevin Nash can't get out of the backseat of the car. It's Davey oh. Boy. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm stuck. I'm too big. Oh. <laughs> 
I, I feel like that he could have gotten out anytime he wanted. And I think um, one, two, three kid was there too, but he was probably messed up on Soma's. Say, hold on, I got to go back to the hotel room and get my nunchucks. I'll be right back. <laughs> As it was stated in the Wrestling Observer, Sean Waltman, in parentheses, legitimate tough guy. <laughs> Oh, you know he got some shit from the click for that. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he got the shit kicked out of him by these Marines. Um, uh, coincidentally, he was going to have to lose the belt to uh, Dean Douglas on that pay-per-view, is my understanding. So he was not doing that match. So yeah, his injuries were much too severe for him to work, it turned out. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Yeah, amazing. Whenever it's time for Shawn Michaels to do a job, he can't do it. I almost respect the the brazenness with which Shawn Michaels pursued that idea his entire time, like these like five years, where Shawn Michaels is just like, you know what? No jobs. We're just yeah. not doing it. No nope. old school Piper yeah. style. Fucking Mill Maskers. No job. Let's. <laughs> yeah. It's not happening. So then they ran the classic angle on Raw where. Uh, he's wrestling Owen Hart. He gets hit with an Inseguri and he gets knocked out and they just sell this. They sell this like he's dead. Like the commentary goes silent. They bring out like a stretcher, a respirator. He actually went to the hospital, like went to the emergency room to be treated. Like they went all in on selling this. This was a much more like, serious and reality-based angle than we were used to seeing in the WWF. I mean, this is probably the edgiest thing they've done since, like, Savage got his arm chewed up by the Cobra. Right. Yeah. I mean, a very cool angle, well done, that got, I think, a lot of sympathy for him. And, like, that's the important thing, is that, like, Shawn Michaels had been, like, such an irredeemable dickhead as he <laughs> yeah. Like, he was, for a long time, like, the only real heel in the whole company. I mean, Yokozuna was kind of there. I mean, he was just a monster. But, like, it was Shawn Michaels who was the chicken shit unlikable heel. Coming back from that is ridiculously difficult. So, they, they it's a huge success that they managed to get any sympathy on him. So they teased his career was over. They did the uh, famous Tell Me a Lie video package. Very modeling. Yes. Um, but I, I think it hit the right chord. Absolutely. I mean, that's a good video. Like, it's right up there with uh, I'll Be Your Hero in terms of, like, schmaltzy, overdone yeah. stuff. But it works. But Sean recovered to uh, win the Royal Rumble for the second year in a row. This time he eliminated Diesel with sweet chin music at the end. I think the mistake here was the previous year he had entered number one and run the table. Like this time he comes in like 18 or 19 or something. It's like, oh, of course he's going to win. Like right. you really should have had him run, even though it would have maybe been predictable. Like I feel like they should have had him do the full 60 minutes. How amazing, how made would he have been if yeah. he did it two years in a row? Yeah, just like, comes out number one again, and they're like, what? He drew number one again? And literally, like, the entire time, everyone's trying to throw him yeah. out because they know, and, and he, he still pulls it off. Yeah. I think that would have been the way to go. I agree. Um, so the main event that night was Bret Hart defending against The Undertaker. Um, the reason it went on last was they wanted to set up the feud between Diesel and Undertaker. So Diesel and Undertaker 
have a little confrontation during Undertaker's entrance after Diesel has lost the Royal Rumble. And then Diesel comes back to cost Undertaker the match when he's just tombstone Brett and has him pinned and has the title won. Diesel pulls the referee out of the ring and then gives gives Taker the finger. Pretty good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Again, they're moving in that edgier direction. Like, it's starting to happen. And thank God. Because, like, they don't know how overdue it really is and how important it's going to be that they actually do pursue that. But, like, thank God it starts here. Because if they had started a year later, it would have been too late. Uh, The February in your house was uh, headlined by Bret Hart versus Diesel in a steel cage match for the title. Bret won by escape um, as Diesel was going out the door and Bret was climbing out. The Undertaker came up from under the mat and dragged Diesel down under the ring and into the depths of hell. Still a very cool visual to this day. Yeah, it worked. Like that, that, that worked. And they didn't over... I think maybe they had like smoke come out of the ring, but like they didn't super overdo it like they right. did like when Kane did it to Seth Rollins and like fire shot out from under the ring or whatever. That was so stupid. But yeah, so that's set up. So the kind of famous story from here is Diesel really wanted Brett to take the jackknife and have him beat, and Brett refused. I think Brett was right to do that. I agree, honestly. Um, so, like, yeah, I mean, that's portrayed as a Brett when Brett Brett's protecting himself. Like, he already basically did the job for Undertaker the month before and got bailed out. It's a little too much for him to be beaten by Diesel here, too. I don't think that would have been good booking. Oh, yeah, especially since it would have been like Undertaker whoops his ass, Diesel whoops his ass, Shawn Michael whoops his ass in three consecutive months. Yeah. It's like you got to protect him somewhat. Otherwise, yeah. it's just a mid-quarter by the end of this. And the way they did this put plenty of heat on Undertaker Diesel. Absolutely. But that was apparently last straw, according to Nash, for him leaving uh, for WCW, which I don't know. That seems a little self-serving. Yeah, and I'm pretty. It seems pretty obvious that he was leaving either way. Like he can say last straw all he wants, but if that's the last straw, you were already gonna go. He couldn't turn down the offer they were making him. That much money for that few dates, like he would have been insane to turn that down. Yeah, here's everything you need to know about that offer: is that it was so good that people didn't even really blame him for going. <laughs> like it was just so fucking. Anybody would have taken that. Like yeah. yeah. Even Vince couldn't be mad about it. He was like, well, shit, that's yeah, a lot where, of money. For where the wrestling business was at that point, yeah, like $700,000 guaranteed to work like half as many dates. Just incredible. Yeah. Um, on the undercard of that pay-per-view, uh, Sean beat Owen Hart to retain his WrestleMania title shot and exercise those demons. So the next night on Raw, there's a promo where Brett and Sean both you know, brag about their fitness. Brett says he's the Energizer Bunny. He's pink, and he just keeps going and going and going. Um, Sean made, I think, some subtle sexual innuendos about how he could uh, go all night. And interim WWF Commissioner Roddy Piper announced that the Brett-Sean title match would be a 60-minute Ironman match. Most falls in one hour wins. Okay, let's cover this now. They ruined this match by giving it this stipulation. Is that fair to say? I th- we've talked about Iron Man matches before. They suck. It's a terrible stipulation. 
Yeah. And especially in this case, because they know right from the very fucking beginning that they're going to overtime. Like, that's the whole fucking idea, right? If that's the case, and you're sort of aping with this by doing an athletic contest in this way that's sort of a pure athletic contest and not like a, a real fiery build, you're kind of aping the NWA. And what you're doing is telling people in advance that they do not need to watch 59 minutes and 59 seconds of this match. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, I just what makes wrestling great is sudden death, right? I mean, it's not the only thing, but it's one of many things. But yeah, the drama is it can end any time, and that is sucked out of it in an Iron Man match. Yeah, and we'll cover this when we get to the match itself. But like the idea that it, if you didn't know it was going to go an hour, and it just does go an hour, it feels special. That would have been legendary. It would have been like, oh my god, they're still fucking going. Yeah, because after 20 minutes, if after 20 minutes, Sean had hit Brett with sweet chin music and covered, everybody would have thought that was the finish. Yes. And that Brett kicks out, and they wrestle for another 40 minutes. Like, the crowd would have been biting on every near fall after because 20 minutes. it's got to end, right? Yeah. Like, no way are they going to go a full hour. That's crazy. It our Broadways aren't a thing that exists in WWE at this point. It's just no. not. No, and you're having, you're, you're going to have enough trouble just selling people on the idea of like a pure wrestling match as a marquee attraction because they've never presented a pure wrestling match as a marquee attraction ever. Yeah. They did the big, you know, 24/7 style build of the match, showing both guys training. You know, we see Sean doing pull-ups like running steps, running in the desert. Brett is out like running in the ice cold in Calgary, swimming laps. He's working out with his dad in the dungeon, like working on new submission holds. It's cool. I like this kind of build, but there's no heat. Yes. There's no tension between these guys. The basis of this match is literally who's the better worker. Yeah. which is not something your audience really understands at this point and yeah. wouldn't care about even if they did. No, it just that's a totally foreign concept. I mean, every pre, I mean, is it fair to say every single previous WrestleMania has been sold on a grudge match? Absolutely. Like that's just that's American wrestling. Personal issues draw money. Yes. That's and like nobody understands that better than Vince, which is why this confuses me so much. Yeah, I Vince I'm to think doesn't of, give a I shit. think this is probably a Patterson. Now Patterson's not really with the company, although I think he did help put together this match. But he did, yeah. I think this was one of during one of Pat's periods of retirement. But yeah, I'm curious. This was seems like a Brad idea to me. Yeah, that, that's probably this is probably something what Sean and Brett both wanted. Like, yeah. give us 60 minutes, let us prove we're the best. And then I wonder because we talked about last time how Shawn Michaels literally stole the match from Diesel. And I wonder if there wasn't a competitive thing on Brett's mind, like, let you try to steal this fucking match from me. I'm yeah. better than you. Yeah, which, yeah, is interesting for wrestling nerds like us, but, like, we're not the ones you're trying to sell this pay-per-view to. We're going to buy yeah. it anyway. If you're Vince, you've got to keep keep them. You're supposed to be filtering this idea out. Like, yeah, but no one would actually want to see that. I just wonder if maybe Vince himself was such a fanboy for these two guys that he was just like, yeah, fucking yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can believe that. 
Uh, the sub-main event is Diesel versus Undertaker. Like that's a, It's a good feud, but really the story here is Nash is leaving for WCW. So is Hall. Um, we've covered that in our uh, WCW Bash the Beach 96 episode, but they both got big money offers, like $700,000 a year um, for a very limited number of dates to jump. Like, as much as the money was a big deal, people overlooked the schedule. Like it's more money than they're making the WWF, but I think the schedule was just as big a thing. Like their money in the WWF, once you add in like royalties, pay-per-view bonuses probably wasn't that far off from what they got from WCW, but like they were working real hard to get that money in the WWF and they had no security. Oh yeah. It's like 300 dates a year. It's brutal. It's like, fucking nuts and it's like international and stuff like that you go to work for wcw and you're barely working house shows and then once the nwo starts you're working zero house shows and like what a great schedule yeah you're basically doing nitro nitros and a pay-per-view each month and like a couple house shows but like just bullshit yeah like an incredible schedule and i mean hall apparently asked vince if he was going to stay with the WBF, if he could go work some dates in all Japan just to make more money and like, fuck, travel all the way to Japan and get the shit kicked out of you in those all Japan style matches. Like that's nuts. Yeah. And like, I get get with Steve Williams and those guys. Fuck. No, I certainly get why Vince said no, because like, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I completely understand where Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were coming from. Like, the schedule is brutal. Everyone on the whole roster has, like, a Soma addiction because literally you're just getting pounded to death every night. Yeah. And if you don't, you get yanked off the card and lose your spot. Like, it's, yeah. it's a, this is a brutal time to be a professional wrestler. And no it's, security. You have no idea how much money you're going to make each year. Like yeah. you're just waiting on your WrestleMania check. And that's how, that's what determines whether you have a good year or not. Like and, and you can not- make $300,000, you can make $600,000, but it's totally on the whims of Vince McMahon. Yeah. And it, on Vince's side, it's not like Vince is withholding a bunch of money that he's making. He doesn't have it. Like they're, they're working this much because Vince is running 500 shows a year, just trying to make any money. Yeah. I mean, this is the era where Vince is like literally dipping into his own pocket. Yeah. Floating the company money from his personal savings to keep it running. Like, we're a year away from potential bankruptcy for this company. Like, they're going to hand Bret Hart to WCW just because they can't pay him. Yeah. Like, this is bad times. (laughs) It's not good. And WCW is really breathing down their neck. You know, they've launched Nitro in September 95. Um Nitro is immediately competitive with Raw in the ratings, really to the shock of everyone. Like, yes. I think they were selling people on, like, we can do, like, a 1.5, and they're instantly doing, like, 2.5s. They're right on par with Raw, and they've got a way better show. Like, yes. Nitro is so much better than Raw and will continue to be until, like, 1998. The, the miracle of Nitro isn't really a miracle at all. It's just... Everyone assumed that because WWF was the standard and had brand, more brand recognition that it would be on top. But Nitro was such a more dynamic and modern package with like even more stars than WWF had. That's the whole recipe. It's just to spice it's it up. Stars plus workers. Plus yeah. they've also got the cruiserweights. They got the talent from Japan. They have so much more talent and they're wrestling a modern style. Whereas 
the WWF style, it's evolved a bit since the 80s, but not that much. I'll go out on a limb and say that Eric Bischoff kind of saved the American wrestling industry. Yeah, when you look at it, America had been trash for years at this point. The action was in Mexico. It was in Japan. Like, America had been ice cold for years, since like 90 at this point. Yeah, and then in comes Bischoff, and it's not so much about the competition that he created between these two companies. It's about the fact that he wakes Vince McMahon up because the company, like as we've talked about all these feuds and all of these decisions, it's become so insular. He has no competition. So just obsessively trying to find the new Hogan and find the new Hogan. And it's become like this five year desperate search. And like, because he has nothing else to do. And like his company's going down and down and down as it focuses more and more inwards and it's not updating itself. There's no new influences. There's nothing new. And here comes Bischoff over here, and he forces Vince to do new things. And that's what saves the industry. Yeah. So Vince did start to shake things up a little bit in 95, kind of being having his hand forced by Bischoff. One of the big things he did was he brought in Bill Watts in the fall of 95. And Bill Watts is not around for very long. But I feel like he still has a very underrated, impactful uh, run with the company. If only because he came in and literally told Vince, like, your product sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And Vince listened to him. Like, Vince had the. Vince's. Apparently, the pitch was Vince is just like, I'm going to do the business and the marketing. And, like, Watts is going to run the wrestling. And, like, of course, he couldn't actually bring himself to let that happen. But, like, there's definitely Watts' influence. Like, my understanding is he gave Vince three things. Like, you need to do three things, Vince. You need to make your show more serious, more adult, have more heat. Like, more of your shows need to end with the heels kicking the shit out of the baby faces, yeah. which is just, like, something they had not done very much of to that point. No, heels barely even existed in the past eight years. Yeah. No, so book more heat, make your product more serious and more edgy. Two Push Ahmed Johnson as the top baby face in the company because, of course, it's Bill Watts. Bill Watts loved his black baby face. Yes, he did. Obviously, that didn't pan out. And then three was, he told him, Bret Hart is your man. Like, put the title on him and ride him. And they do put the belt back on Bret. They don't ride him for very long, but that's still important. Like, he's la- he just told Vince, like, no more diesel. Get the belt on Bret. Yeah. And let me even defend for a second the idea of Ahmed Johnson. Because if you were coming in at this point and looking around at their roster, yeah. he looked like the man, right? Yeah. And, like, he wasn't – and he just – he he couldn't – if he had been able to stay healthy, I think he would have been a big star. But he was just so, so reckless. Yeah, it, it didn't really matter that he couldn't work. It, I mean, in the past it hadn't really mattered, so I don't know why it would here. It would fine. Yeah, he could have been warrior, you know? Like, it's there's nothing stopping him. It's just the fact that he kept hurting himself and others. So Vince's response to WCW's competition is the horrible billionaire Ted skits. It, that's such a weird thing on multiple different levels. But partially just, it's so weird to see Vince acknowledge another yes. company. Never, that's always been their rule. We never talk about other companies. Like we never acknowledge our competition. And that just proves that they feel like they're number yeah. two. Yeah. And that's that's wild. Yeah. Like Coke doesn't talk about Pepsi. 
It's just the rule of business. Whoever's on top doesn't acknowledge their competition. WWF never once said the letters in WA together until the 90s. Not once. No, like they would bring in people like Ric Flair and Harley Race and just pretend they were brand new wrestlers, like that they had never <laughs> wrestled anywhere else because there yeah. is no other wrestling. And that's the way that you do it. Like that's that's the way all companies do it. All major corporations, you don't acknowledge your competition. Yeah, I just these skits sucked, and like they were a waste of valuable TV time. And I think they were counterproductive because they just reminded people or informed them if they didn't know that like Hogan and Savage are in WCW now, those real stars that you actually want to see wrestle for the other guys. Yeah, see, that's the thing is that there were people who only watched WWE, who even through the Monday Night Wars, like there were still people who only watched one or the other and stayed with that basically forever. I was one of them. I never watched WCW, but I think I only knew WCW existed from those sketches. God. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I was even aware of it otherwise. So on the free-for-all before this show, there was actually a match between the Huckster and the Nacho Man, My which God. was refereed by Billionaire Ted, and it ended when death came out and killed everyone in the ring. Who is that for? I don't know. The fucking marks in the front row applauded for it, but like everybody else in the stadium was like, what the hell has happened to our beloved company? Yeah. Like it's just it's embarrassing. It's become so inside baseball. This yeah. whole show is just so obsessed with itself. Like the, there's just there's no other way to put it. It's just so insular and focused inwards that it's just gross. Don't you what just a hate the stuff as a fan where if you're watching with somebody who's like not a wrestling yes. fan, this makes you cringe and makes them be like, well, this is stupid. I've gotten dozens of people into wrestling over the years, like people who were completely unaware of what wrestling was besides like maybe they had a vague awareness or maybe they watched like a match when they were kids. It's really easy to get people into wrestling. It's a very appealing product to show to people. But if you show them the wrong thing, yeah. if the first time you ever watched wrestling, you saw some stupid shit like that, you can never get those people back. Yeah. And that's one of those things. And they just all, it, it happens so often. They did some other hardball stuff too, like, Vince wrote a letter to the Federal Trade Commission um, opposing the Turner-Time Warner merger because WCW was trying to destroy the WWF, which is it's just the height of hypocrisy. I mean, even if you ignore the fact that Vince McMahon went around the country yeah. literally buying people's TV time to kill their companies, even if you ignore that and just the blatant hypocrisy of that, who is he trying to appeal to? Who's who's going to be like, oh, that mom and pop wrestling outfit, WWF, we better protect them. Yeah. He also wrote a bunch of like public concern trolling letters about WCW's extreme content and their lax drug testing policies. Just total bullshit. Like, I mean, it's so the act of a man who doesn't understand what's happening and it's just like, just 
rebelling against his cell as he just doesn't understand like why am I not in charge anymore? Why why is my company failing and they're succeeding? I don't get it. It's just loser stuff. If like, Vince Russo never comes along, like does it just keep spiraling for Vince? Probably. And like I hate to give that much credit to Man. Vince Russo, but that was just an influx of outside ideas that was desperately needed. So on the way into the show, Scott Hall, like right after he gave his notice, they I think it was an old drug test failure that they had been ignoring. Like they suspended him. So that killed his planned Miami street fight against Gold Dust. However, Scott Hall really, really was not comfortable working with Gold Dust. Just kind of latent, pure homophobia. Did not like his son seeing him involved in this angle where another man was coming on to him. Like, here's the thing: is that it's total homophobia. That that the whole thing was basically built around the idea that anyone with like Miami machismo would never be able to deal with a homosexual in real life. Like that's the idea. But also the character of Goldust at this point is a rapist. Yeah. <laughs> so it's also I can see why it would be uncomfortable even outside of the homophobia that everyone has. So they substitute in who's the perfect man for this storyline. Who's the most hetero man on earth? Roddy Piper. At least he didn't wear blackface this time. Yeah, we were thinking about before the show started, like how horrible Roddy Piper could have made this. Like if he could have been bad news brown all over again. Yeah, like whatever the like the queer version of that is, where he just comes out in a suit made of dildos or something. Like I, <laughs> I don't even want to imagine what would have got into Piper's mind to do here. He promised to make a man out of gold dust. Yeah. And they would have a Hollywood backlot brawl. One of the strangest matches in WrestleMania history. In wrestling history. Um, Other things going on. Uh, The Ultimate Warrior is back. Yeah, have dusted him off. He's been gone since... The end of 92, I guess. Yeah, it's been three and a half years at this point. Um, you know, he needed some money. Um, WCW pursued him, but I don't really know why they could never land him. He agreed to come back to the WWF. They think they're getting their top draw here. Like, they think this is their new kind of special attraction. Gets a great reaction on this show, but it fades pretty fast. Oh man, it's he's in and out so goddamn fast. He's gotten really weird at this point. Like this is when we get the stuff with Warrior University and the comic book and Dextrucity or whatever the hell it's called. Like literally WWE has to buy hundreds <laughs> of thousands of these comic books because they agree in the contract that they'll publish them for him. And it's just a nightmare. <laughs> Because, like, three of them get sold. This is the part in our podcast, which this is one of the special features that you only get on the Lawcast, where I admit to you guys that I bought something embarrassing as a wrestling fan. Oh, no. Steve. Oh, no. You bought the Warrior comic book? Little Kirsch owned a copy of the Warrior comic book. God, if you still had that, it would be valuable. 
I do not. I literally, I remember I, I had to call a number with my parents' permission, like a toll-free number, yeah. to place the order, and it showed up at my house, and I read it, and it was like six pages long, and it was so bad I threw it away. Because <laughs> I was such a big Ultimate Warrior fan. It was so awesome that he was coming back. That was my guy. So much excitement. I had never gotten to see him live because I was only watching VHSs of shows he had been on before then. Like, this was supposed to be the show for me. Like, I was all in on this. Bret Hart was my guy. He was my guy. Ahmed Johnson was awesome. Like, I was, like, all in on the product. Yeah, I mean, I will say Warrior is the biggest star on this show. It's like, not close. He gets a superstar's reaction when he comes out. And, I mean, like, you want so badly to see a real star. Because after years and years of them trying to make stars and not knowing how to make stars... Just the idea of being like, that guy's a star. I know he is. This is great. Fucking yeah, let's go. And then <sighs> you get what you get. Yeah, he gets fired in the summer after no showing some dates. I think we talked about that in our uh, King of the Ring 1996 episode. But just a, just it's the warrior. It's a spectacular rise and then an even more spectacular flame out. Definitely. Um. There is an influx of new talent to the company. They've signed some big free agents. They got Vader, uh, Steve Austin, Mick Foley is coming in. He's not on this show, but he debuts um, on the on the on the Raw the next night after this. So um, Austin is still he. They've already dropped the Ringmaster name, but he's still kind of like you know the silent you know technician managed by Ted DiBiase. He's not got the proper Stone Cold character yet. That doesn't come until they get rid of DiBiase and start letting him do his own promos. Yeah, he's still toting that belt around. They just so don't get it. Like, Steve Austin is a great promo. It was a very good promo in WCW. It was an awesome promo in ECW before this. And they bring him in and give him a silent gimmick. Yep. I Nothing is working. Allegedly, Vince even knew about the promos in ECW. That was like some of the only ECW he had ever seen. And like, yeah. even so, you bring him in. They basically bring him in to be his WCW gimmick of having great 15-minute matches in the mid-card forever. Yeah. And somehow it all works out. And it's a very bizarre series of things that has to happen for that to work. Absolutely. Um, Vader, they rightfully think they've got a superstar and that never really pans out for, again, a strange variety of reasons, but I mean, he just had sort of a snake bitten run. It turned out he was hurt when he came in. So he debuts at the rumble. They give him one of those spots where he comes in and like throws a bunch of people out, but then himself gets eliminated after like two minutes. That's a shame. Yeah. Like, I know that they had just done, like, the Yokozuna thing. So maybe having, like, a monster that takes over your company isn't, like, the coolest idea or whatever. But, like, Vader could have been a top heel for them for a decade. Like, you get that guy who's that credible and that much of a badass and that big. Like, that's so yeah. awesome. They just didn't get Vader. It's interesting. They get all these free agents in, but it's like Vince is still trying to plug them into what his idea of this company is supposed to be. 
And that's just not relevant anymore. And so none of these guys are fitting smoothly into it. Yeah. Like they probably should have just brought Vader in, had him win the Rumble, had him win the title at WrestleMania, just pushed him to the moon. Yeah. And I think there's part of Vince that even to this day, despite whoever may try to admit it, he does not like to bring guys in and put them over his guys. No. It's no. just something he's not comfortable with. Agreed. And maybe he sees it as like a betrayal of the trust of the people who stuck with him. I don't know. But yeah, he, it's just not something he will do. Even if he should, even if it's what would be best for business, he will not do it. So the night after the Rumble, Vader attacked Gorilla Monsoon. That put Monsoon out. That was a great angle. Because yes. like, Monsoon had never gotten physical. Like Since he had been an announcer, we had never seen anybody put hands on him. And Vader fucks him up. Like, you never get your hands on Gorilla. No. Like... Nobody, even even the nastiest, most vile heel they had ever brought in wouldn't have touched Gorilla Monsoon. I mean, touching non-wrestling figures wasn't a thing yeah. that even really happened. We weren't even doing ref bumps, really, at that point. Yeah, no, that's this is kind of breaking new ground. Um, so that gets Vader kayfabe suspended, which is to cover for the fact that he needs shoulder surgery and needs time to recover from that. He is on this on this show in a six-man tag match, which is not exactly a great WrestleMania debut, but I don't know how far in advance they knew he was going to be healthy. Yeah. I mean, how does all of this change if Vader... I mean, Vader still loses to Sean in the Alamo Dome, right? Yeah. I mean, so the plan they had was yes. he's going to lose at SummerSlam, he's going to win the belt at Survivor Series, and then he's going to put over Sean in the Alamo right. Dome at the Rumble. But Sean didn't like working with him, and he was out of shape and hard to deal with. And that's the thing. Got injured a lot. Vader, <laughs> a lot of these things are his fault. Like, yeah. Vader sexually, har yeah. sexually harassed sewer stewardesses on planes, like did lots of shitty things. Previously in his career, Vader had gotten away with being a total yeah. dickhead by being a money-making dickhead. <laughs> Like in Japan, Vader could probably just like bring a plane down and people would still be like, well, <laughs> he'll draw a house, so it's fine. Um, another important business development, they're now running pay-per-views every month. Uh, the first in-your-house pay-per-view was May 95. Um, the in-your-house shows were only two hours long instead of three hours. They were cheaper. I think they were like $19.99 and they were selling their pay-per-views for like 25 bucks. And I think they went up to 30 this January. So this run, this WrestleMania was uh, probably either 30 or 35. This is the business model that I will still say is the one that they should actively be doing. Like the two hour sort of mini pay-per-view that can be made of into by like a tag match or an IC yeah, title match. I like that. Like it, it rests your top guys. It gives other angles a chance to blossom and be important. Like it's just, why not? Especially like these days. Where like any show that Lesnar's not on isn't a real show. Yeah, and it makes the big it would make the big shows feel special. Yeah, and just let them be shorter. You don't have to treat them all like they're like because we understand that they're not. Like we can live with that. We can live with a B pay per view. Yeah, you could do a two hour pay per view like every two weeks, and like people would be on board for that. I think. I mean, good. Obviously, in the long run. Good business move that they went um, to the monthly pay-per-views. They needed this revenue, and it turned out, you know, they had enough fans who were willing to drop money every month that it was profitable. 
for as much as people like rebelled against the idea at the time, it's amazing how quickly it became like the obvious natural thing. It's just like, oh yeah, of course, every month you'll have a pay-per-view. Like it's unthinkable that you wouldn't. And then the even bigger thing was when they raised the price, when they stopped doing the $20 and raised all the pay-per-views up to 30 and not only not only did their buy rates not go down, they actually went up. Like more people bought the shows because the shows got better. Yeah, because like once you get more money to spend on them, the shows are better, and that's fine. There's a price point people will fire you to. I mean, it, there just is. God, how, what did they get to by the end? They were 50, 60 bucks. Yeah, for the HD ones, it was sixty. Oh, yeah, that was rough. Bought an awful lot of sixty dollars shows. <laughs> Uh, this WrestleMania really kind of bombed. Um, you know, worst grossing WrestleMania adjusted for inflation since WrestleMania one. It only did a 1.2 buy rate, which is uh, under 300,000 buys. Like they hadn't been under 300,000 buys since since the pay per view market expanded to the point where that was a plausible number for them to do. Wow. It's, down from you know like three hundred and forty thousand the year before, just not good business. I mean, this is like at this point, WrestleMania has really become just another pay per view. Yep. Um, so to get into the show, Sunday, March thirty first, nineteen ninety six, we're at the Arrowhead Pond in Anaheim, California. Uh, sellout crowd of over eighteen thousand on hand. Paying uh, $737,000 at the gate. So, you know, good live business, but, you know, the money's in the pay-per-view and they just didn't move pay-per-views this year. Yeah, unfortunately. On commentary, we've got the team of Vince McMahon and Jerry the King Lawler. God, I hate these guys together. It's just the worst team. Like, somehow it makes Lawler even more oily and scummy. (laughs) Just being there with Vince. And then Vince responds to everything with, oh, my. Thank God they get Jim Ross in next year. Thank fucking Christ. Um, On the free-for-all, as we mentioned, the Huckster and the Nacho Man ended in a no contest when everyone died, including (laughs) the crowd. And then the Body Donnas defeated the Godwins to win the World Tag Team Championship. Let's talk about this WWF tag team tournament to determine who is going to win the match in a dark match at WrestleMania. Yeah. Let me just run down a list of these tag teams for you. Okay. The Body Donnas beat the Bushwhackers in the first round. The Bushwhackers Bushwhackers in 1996. Yep. Bushwhackers are still there. Uh, Razor Ramon and Savio Vega, which is a pretty good team. Yeah. Uh, Face the one, two, three kid in Tatanka, who I guess are a team, sure. Uh, million Dollar Corporation, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, kid's a heel by now. Uh, but since Razor Ramon gets suspended, it becomes the ringmaster in Savio Vega in the next round. <laughs> and hmm. Steve Austin loses to the Body Donnas. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Owen Hart and the British Bulldog versus Hakushi and Barry Horowitz. Kushi Barry Horowitz? Yes. That doesn't that's, make any sense. That's the team. <laughs> oh, man. Hart and Bulldog, huge stars, lose to the Godwins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And the Godwins beat the new rockers of Leaf Cassidy and Marty Chinetti. Oh, boy. Oh, no. That's where we at. That's the tag division, ladies and gentlemen. That's the whole thing. Can you think of why the tag titles are vacant? I honestly can't. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, it's a tournament to decide. Oh, Billy Gunn suffered a neck injury, so the smoking gun's vacated. Ah, there we go. There it is. All right. Yeah, so one of the oddities of this WrestleMania is that there is only one title match on it. The main event is for the WWF title. The tag titles are on the pre-show, and the Intercontinental title is not contested on the show. Bizarre. Yeah, I mean, now, God, WrestleMania has 15 title matches, it seems. Oh, it's every single title has to be defended, including fake made-up titles like the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal title. Ooh. Opening package focuses on Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. I quite like this video package. It's the one where the narration begins. Uh, it is the dream of the challenger to become champion. I like those narrated video packages. Yes. Like, they're so good. Just lays out the story very clear for us. This is Bret Hart is trying to solidify his legacy as a great champion. Shawn Michaels is trying to achieve his dream. One of them is going to win all the glory. The other is going to be shattered. If there were any other actual story and this was just like a narrator putting it together, it would be better. But this, yeah. literally the narrator is telling you the whole plot because you wouldn't have known it had you watched the TV coming in. Uh, then Vince and Lawler welcome us to the show and we've got our opening match. It's a six-man tag match. Uh, the team of... Camp Cornette, Vader, the British Bulldog, and Owen Hart take on Jake the Snake Roberts, Yokozuna, and Ahmed Johnson. What a squad we've got here. Man. Ahmed Johnson, Jake Roberts, and Yokozuna. Is that the weirdest three-fan team of all time? Would love to see those guys go clubbing together. God, just like what could you, Ahmed Johnson and Jake Roberts possibly have to say to each other? Not much. So Yokozuna doesn't even speak English. Yeah. So this is, you know, religious revival, Jake. He's back and cleaned up and a Christian now. Um, Yokozuna is so, so incredibly fat. Like he's bad. It's bad, man. Yeah. This is, I mean, not long after this, he gets banned from wrestling. Like the New York athletic commission wouldn't license him. Like there's two types of fat. There's big, and then there's like loose skin fat, where like your body's just clearly not capable of dealing with what's happening to it. And he's that one. Like he didn't look unhealthy when he was just a giant round motherfucker in the early 90s. He's unhealthy here. Yeah, and can barely move. Yeah. Um, and Ahmed is their new hot thing. You know, great body, some charisma, you know, not a very good wrestler, but just like dynamic and explosive in the ring. That moment where he does a fucking plancha over the top rope, that man was athletic. He did that in like every match and it almost looked like he was going to die. Yeah. He just, he barely clears it every single time. I don't know why. He just always seemed like he was just, just that bit away from killing himself. So the stipulation is that if the faces win, Yokozuna gets five minutes with his former manager, Jim Cornette. This includes a super awesome segment on the shows leading up to this where they make a paper mache Jim Cornette with a balloon head 
Inyo Kazuna squashes it with a bonsai giraffe and the balloon explodes. Uh, Yoko dominates until Bulldog uh, pulls Owen out of the way as he attempts a corner avalanche. Uh, the advantage is short-lived. Yoko turns the tide with a huge uh, rock bottom or Uranagi on Vader. That was uh, pretty cool to see. Absolutely. Um, Ahmed tags in, but he quickly gets shut down with forearms from Vader. Um, Ahmed fires up, drops Vader with a shoulder block. Ahmed sets up for the Pearl River plunge, but Owen flies off the top rope with the missile drop kick. There's a double clothesline, so both guys are down. Hot tag to Jake the Snake. He comes in, gets a pretty good pop, but his comeback gets shot down. Um, hot tag to Yoko when he cleans house, hits a big Samoan drop on Bulldog. Jake tags in, hits the DDT on Owen. The ref gets distracted. Everything breaks down. Ahmed goes flying out of the ring for a plancha. Cornette comes in, almost gets DDT'd, but Vader breaks it up. Vader bomb on Jake, gets the pin for the heels. That was a good opening match that probably went a little longer than it needed to. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I very much did. I mean, it's not good by any stretch of the imagination, but at least it's like a lot of weird personalities together. And Vader looked good. Like, Vader looked very cool here, like something that you would want to see more of. Uh, then there's a video package recapping the uh, Piper Gold Dust issue, and it's time for our Hollywood backlot brawl as Roddy Piper takes on Gold Dust. So this is a pre-taped match that they filmed a, the day, a day or two before the show at, I assume, Universal Studios. I mean, I would have to imagine. <laughs> I don't know where else it would be. Um there's no particular rules to this match and no specified way to win. You just fight. Hey, I, I, this match literally begins with just Goldust very poorly driving a gold car. That into the back gold line. Cadillac is fucking awesome, though. Yes, it's so rad that they literally... Super villain car. And, like, he drives it up, and Brody Piper immediately takes a bat and caves in the driver's <laughs> side window. I, I hope it was Howard Finkel's Cadillac. God, I just... The degree to which Vince McMahon would go to ruin Howard Finkel's <laughs> life. Because they literally did that with his car. No, it was Gerald Briscoe's car. Where, like, they were doing, like, suplexes and shit on his front front windshield. Oh, and no, they, the, one, the one they smash up on Raw in that fight in one of those early Raws is Finkel's car. Oh, that's Finkel's car? It's Finkel's car, and Vince Vince ended up buying him a new Cadillac but just after they smashed it. Vince watching it and just laughing yeah. his ass off. Yeah, everything is a rib on Howard Finkel and it the really Rhodes is. family. Oh, we've done so many shows now where it's all <sighs> just ribs on Howard Finkel. So they've got, like, fans just there at this watching these guys fight. So they are fucking laying things in. Like, yeah. I mean, these are it. not worked punches. They're just hitting each other for real. And, like, to the degree, like, I, at one point, Goldust, like, kind of pushes the bat away. Because he's. I think he's afraid that Piper's seriously going to start wailing on him with the bat. Um, Piper broke his hand throwing punches. I'm sure Dustin's face was messed up. Like he had to at least have bruises, if not like a broken cheekbone from some of these shots. Oh God. Yeah. Had to have. 
Um, two minutes in, Goldust is bleeding. I don't know if he played it or not. Like, this is a silly, ridiculous match, but like the brutality here is like nothing we've ever seen at WrestleMania. I don't feel like they intended it to be that way. I think it just got away from them because the whole rest of it, every bit of it that Vince covers and the bit that we're going to get to with the white Bronco is all just funny haha. Yeah. And like literally, but like, once Piper and Dustin Rhodes get in there, they're just like, well, fuck, we're not going to look weak in front of all these people. And they just start tearing each other apart. So Goldust gets behind the wheel of the car and goes to run over Piper. And he actually hits him. He hits Piper with a car. Yeah. He's not going slow either. Like, I think it was actually Piper, too. I don't think it was a stunt double. It didn't look like there was a cut. If there was a stunt double, then it's damn impressive. But literally, it genuinely looks like he drives into Piper. Piper jumps up on the hood. And, like, he gets hit by that car. At the very last second, he jumps up on the hood. But, like, God, this this is dangerous. way to, like, test that. Like, they didn't, like, do the stunt a couple times to figure it out. Piper could have died. (laughs) It's really crazy that they did this in front of people. Like, this is a totally different match if there's no people there and they can just, like, work it and use special effects and stuff. I mean, it's just amazing. Like, you could just do this on a close lot so easily. (sighs) So, Piper, like, falls off the hood and then Goldust drives off. Piper... Gets behind the wheel of a car, a white Ford Bronco, which just happens to be sitting there, and pursues gold dust, hitting several cars on his way out of the parking lot. Which, God, I hope was intentional. (laughs) Yeah. And so the match is sort of over, but it will continue in lame-ass snippets throughout the night as they will play clips of the O.J. Simpson white Bronco chase. And, like, you know, kind of hee-haw, like, oh, this footage looks awfully familiar. Here is the madness of this, is that they literally put the actual footage from the white Bronco chase from the O.J. Simpson thing, which had ended months before. Like, the white Bronco chase was, like, a year before this, right? Uh, The Bronco chase was June 94, OJ was acquitted in October 95. So we're six months from the end of the trial and what a year and a half, almost two years from the actual chase that they show. And don't get me wrong, like referencing the chase or referencing the trial in general, it's understandable. It was the biggest pop culture moment of the decade. No, no questions asked, but to dose do that particular part, Vince, this is clearly something Vince wanted to do. It's just be like, wouldn't it be funny if he got in a Bronco and we just used the Bronco footage? But, like, that's so – it's not relevant. So, like, there's nobody who did that and was like, ha-ha, good one. Who's that for? Vince. It's yeah. an audience of one. I guess. And, like, look, I'm not trying to, like, tear this down or be, like, a complaining motherfucker. Like – I don't mind Vince doing stuff that's just for Vince. It's his company. Go for it. It's just like you're in such a bad spot right now and you're wasting precious time and people who like paid for your product, the few fans you have left, 
You're wasting their time with this. Give them something, man. Yeah, this was just a horribly conceived idea. The actual match is watchable in that it's just a brutal, brutal brawl. Yeah. And, I mean, Dustin Rhodes is really great at that. He never really got a chance to do a ton of that in WWE. But, like, if you watch his WCW, yeah. it's like he could do a bloody brawl for sure. So next up, we've got Steve Austin against Savio Vega. As I mentioned, you know they've already dropped the ringmaster. He's already being billed as Stone Cold Steve Austin. I just feel like in the kind of narrative around this, people treated it as if he was the ringmaster for a long time, and it was really only a couple weeks. Yeah, they realized their mistake pretty quickly with what they were doing. They didn't really get what to do with Austin for like another year, really, but... Like, by the time we get to WrestleMania 13, they get it to some yeah. degree. Yeah. But he's Steve Austin, but Steve Austin here is like a silent, you know, deadly assassin. It's not beer drinking redneck yet. Right. And I mean, look, <laughs> Steve Austin versus Savio Vega is a match that happens approximately 700 times. Yeah. Like, it's like these are the only two mid carters who can work. So they wrestle each other a thousand times but it's never bad no they got, got great, great chemistry. chemistry yeah um so they have a good technical match that the crowd is not at all interested in nope during the match we cut to the you know oj simpson footage piper calls in to the commentary booth at some point this is always the match no one cares about is going on um Austin, late in the match, comes off the top rope, gets booted in the face. The referee gets bumped. Austin applies a chin lock. Um, DiBiase then pours a drink on the ref's face to revive him, and Vega's arm drops three times, and Austin wins. Yes, that was actually the finish. Yeah. Uh, apparently, there was a time in the world where that's actually how matches ended. That is like just about the only time I've ever seen somebody's arm drop three times. It's very, very rare, man. They did it briefly in TNA with a Joe where he put in the coquina yeah, club. choke guys out. Yeah, because that just made him look even badder that he was choking people out. But that's the only time I can think of. Then Mr. Perfect interviews Diesel backstage. They uh, recap the mind games Undertaker has been playing with him the last few weeks. Best one was definitely when like the Druids brought the casket down to ringside and Diesel opened it thinking Undertaker was going to be in there. And instead it was like, I think it was probably Glenn Jacobs as a fake Diesel. I, I would guess so. I mean, he had been fake Diesel before. Or no, he would be fake Diesel would later. That's maybe been where the idea came from. Was that the Glenn Jacobs or like maybe, I don't know if it was a camera trick and they actually had Nash in there and they filmed it and inserted it. But yeah, very cool as he's like looking at himself in the casket. That's pretty cool. Uh, Nash doesn't really sell any of it, says he's taking Undertaker down tonight. If Nash weren't leaving, do you think he would have beaten Undertaker here? I like to think about all the like fortune it took for the streak to happen. I don't think so because we're still in a time where heels don't win at WrestleMania. Yeah, that is true. I mean, 
in big matches at least, it's just not really a thing that happens. They don't know that they have a streak with the Undertaker yet. That's not for several more years. That oh they no, I don't think they. Even, I don't think they realized it until like WrestleMania eighteen. Seven, I think 17. 17 is the first time I remember like it being a thing. How fascinating is that? That they just don't even know for like years. Eight no before they kind of got it. JR may have mentioned it on commentary in one of the WrestleManias before that, but it was just in passing. It was just like a fun fact. The Undertaker's never lost at WrestleMania. It's just so funny to me that they had like 17 different booking meetings where they're like, should the Undertaker lose here? Nah, put him over. 17 times in a row and never realized it. Um, so next we've got Hunter Hearst Helmsley against the Ultimate Warrior. So yes. Warriors return to the company after years away. Helmsley is managed by a debuting Sable uh, in this match. Uh, she's not really acknowledged as who she is. That comes later. Um, Helmsley gets a nice pop, I think, just in anticipation of the fact that Warrior is about to come out. Yeah, they just realize it's time for that match. Um, Warrior has not been seen at all in the buildup to this match, so Lawler keeps claiming that Warrior is now 400 pounds and bald. Warrior <laughs> comes out. Uh, he's in great shape. He looks really pretty much like the classic Ultimate Warrior. Gets a gigantic pop and great entrance. Tons of pyro. Really feels special. He looks like the star that you were praying he would be. Like he came back. It was like he stepped through a portal from 1992. He looks great. He's got one of his ridiculous coats on and he's got the face paint and it's awesome. Like, it, I remember watching it and be like, this is everything I wanted. He's so awesome. Yes. And then the bell rang. <laughs> so, yeah, this match happens. Helmsley hits a couple punches. Pedigree's Warrior. Warrior stands straight up. Guys, the fact that Pedigree had... became arguably the most credible finisher in the history of professional wrestling is truly amazing, considering that there's a moment where some dude stands right the fuck up out of it like it yeah. never happened. Warrior fires up, hits a big series of clotheslines, a shoulder tackle, press slam, splash, one, two, three. Warrior wins in 90 seconds. He pinned Triple H like with his knees on his chest. He could not have buried him anymore. Literally, like, if you watch very closely, when... Warrior stands up out of the pedigree. Just look. If you go back and watch this match, look at the look on Triple H's face in that moment. <sighs> He's trying so hard to sell it, but there's just such a look of despair in his eyes. Like, that, that, that's my push. All right. Guess uh, I'll see a bitch off siren. So this was supposed to be, like, it wasn't going to be a long match, but, like, I don't know, five, eight minutes probably. Uh -huh. Like a real match. And Warrior was just like, no. Just like refused to cooperate. Said it was going to be a squash. Nothing they could do. They just let him do it, which... Bad precedent to set. I mean, that's the point at which you realize, like, uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh, this is the trouble guy here. with. Uh... 
hilariously, Triple H will go on to become the most powerful man in professional wrestling. Yeah. If you ever doubted yourself or thought that something in your life was horrible <laughs> and that you couldn't overcome it, just understand that Triple H once had a guy just eat his finisher alive in front of the maximum possible pay-per-view audience. <laughs> yeah. And just bury him into the ground and still went on to become literally the most powerful wrestler of all time. So follow your dreams. Yeah. Fight for your dreams and they'll fight for you. There you go. We go backstage where Todd Pettengill interviews Mark Miro. He calls him Mark Morrow. Mark Morrow. Also, Todd Pettengill has a buzz cut here and it's so depressing. Yeah, he needs the sleazy mullet. It's like, oh my god, the good days are done. That's it. That's that's the sign. Going corporate. Uh, he looks so horrible. Mark Marrow. And then Helmsley shows up and fights with Miro, and we've got a post WrestleMania feud. All right. Are you supposed to realize that that's Mark Marrow's wife? No, nah, I think that comes later. Okay, so it's just because like Triple H just literally walks through the scene. Like, pushes Sable once, and then Mark Mirror just jumps in and they start brawling. <laughs> it's it's kind of a weird, out-of-nowhere impetus. Uh, next up, we've got our sub-main event as Diesel takes on The Undertaker. Um, this match wildly exceeded my expectations. This is the best match on this show. I know some of you are going to hate Ooh. me for saying that. I know, hot, hot take. I know I'm going to get all the comments and I know I'm going to get all the emails and you can just go ahead and bring that shit on because this match was great. Like it wasn't like a five-star match, but like these two drastically exceeded expectations. Diesel starts fast with a clothesline and a back elbow. Undertaker responds with a clothesline of his own, but misses a back elbow. Uh, clothesline from Diesel sends Undertaker to the floor, but he lands on his feet. Uh, they fight out on the floor. Diesel gets slammed into the steps. They go back to the ring. Undertaker sets up for the tombstone, but Diesel slips out, hits a lariat. Um, Undertaker recovers. He hits this rope walk. Then he misses a flying lariat. Um, Undertaker with a hangman, some right hands that knock Diesel over the top rope, and Diesel lands on his feet in a nice parallel of what we saw earlier. Hell yeah. Um, Undertaker misses a chair shot on the floor and gets thrown into the guardrail. Diesel takes over, hits a sidewalk slam, the boss man straddle. Uh, Taker makes a comeback. Ends with him and Diesel hitting simultaneous big boots. That was a pretty cool spot. Yeah. And Kevin Ash could deliver a hell of a big boot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Diesel makes it to his feet first, locks in a bear hug. Taker escapes, uh, knocks Diesel down, and hits a flying clothesline off the top rope. Diesel recovers, hits a jackknife powerbomb out of nowhere. He doesn't make the cover. He hits a second jackknife. He poses rather than cover. When he goes to make his cover, Taker goozles him, sits up, hits a flying lariat, a choke slam, a tombstone. Really, really good match. Absolutely it, loved it. It's so good. And Diesel, Kevin Nash obviously has a ton of respect for The Undertaker because he's on the way out. He could sandbag and make this shit. He's bumping like crazy. 
He's doing like Shawn Michaels bumps, like all over the place for the Undertaker here, and like he's really putting Taker over. It's awesome. Now we see Goldust and Piper rolling into the arena. Piper pursues Goldust through the backstage area down the aisle. They get into the ring and fight. Uh, Goldust clips Piper's knee and goes up to the top rope, but he gets crotched. Goldust kisses Piper, which brings the rowdy one to life. He fires up, grabs Goldust by the dick, drops a knee on his groin, spanks him, and then rips off his bodysuit to reveal that he's wearing women's underwear. And then Goldust retreats, and Piper celebrates in the ring with his son because this was a great family moment. Yeah, just like, what a great family teaching moment. Like, there you go, son. That's how you deal with them homosexuals. You sexually bless them. Like, there's literally a moment where it looks like Piper goes to kiss Goldust. Me, huh? I'll kiss you ten times harder. And the camera cuts away really quickly. God. Oh. Just everything that is the worst of heterosexuality on this planet is presented to you in this match. And everything that's the worst of homosexuality, too. Because it's not like gold dust is the positive gay like no. that we're looking for in the entertainment industry. Like, what happens with a chest-puffing-out heterosexual man fights a weirdo sexual assaulter? Great. <laughs> Sign me up for more. Still not as bad as what he did to Bad News Brown at WrestleMania 6. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. <sighs> All right. It's main event time. We've got our 60-minute Iron Man match for the WWF Championship. Steve, Bret I'm going to go take a 30-minute nap while you do play-by-play for this. Bret <laughs> <laughs> Hart defends the World Wrestling Federation Championship against the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels. This is what the world has come to. Yep. Yep. Uh, WWF President Gorilla Monsoon makes his return after recovering from injuries here. Shawn Michaels' music begins to play, and Jose Lothario comes out. He gets in the ring, points to the ceiling, and Shawn makes his famous zipline entrance. This is awesome. If you haven't seen this in a while, it's actually so much more awesome than you remember, probably. Because it's been played so often that it just becomes one of those things. But, like, this, this might be the coolest entrance in WrestleMania history. Like, this is fucking cool. And, like, of course you can't do this stuff anymore. Like, they just stopped doing stuff from the ceiling after Owen. And for good reason. Yeah, it's dangerous. I mean, literally, Sean is basically just hooked in there on a hook. Like, it's not as secured as you would want your top guy to be. And they do this thing where they send him, and he, like, goes towards the crowd. And then, like, the line kind of curves back. So he's literally, like, heading straight at the fans. And then it looks like he's just going to land in the middle of the crowd. And he kind of does, because when they pull him down, he's like right in the middle of the audience. It's pretty crazy, but like, it's a great moment. Like he looks like a goddamn star. Um, Famous backstory. Vince did the zip line to, you know, show Sean that it was safe. 
Do you think Vince played the music and did the gestures while he oh, was? Oh God, I hope so. And God, I wish there was video of this. Can you imagine? <laughs> Sexy boy starts playing. Vince gets on the zip line, does all the frantic waving about and gesturing at the oh, fans in an empty oh, arena. Oh. How many times in his life do you feel like Vince McMahon came out of the bathroom after a shower and just turned on Sexy Boy and butt ass naked? Yes, bedroom. How many times do you think Linda has seen a naked Vince McMahon oh, do the sexy boy? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Shawn Michaels is the man Vince McMahon thinks he is. God, yes. Uh, Brett gets his entrance. He's got some pyro to spruce it up. But it's basically a, a bullshit entrance after what Shawn just got. Yeah. I think we know who's going over here. Well, they also apparently kept it a pretty big secret from all the people on the actual roster. I don't think Brett knew that Sean was going to do that. So do you think sure he's he better about that? That motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the introduction here. Earl Hebner gives instructions. I think that should be standard for a championship match. I, I love anything that they can do to make a championship match feel like it's more important than a regular match. Like, I just love, like, they do it a little bit now, where in big championship matches, like, they actually introduce both guys, and they do the whole, like, presenting of the belt, and, like, JoJo gets in the middle of the ring and, like, describes the guys, and they get pops and stuff. Like, it makes it feel more special, but this is even better. It's just like a, a major boxing match. We're and like, they shot this so well. I love the tight shots of their faces, their eyes, the title. Like they, this was wonderfully shot. It's like the iconic shot of Bret Hart as he's just like yeah. pensively looking at Shawn Michaels with his sunglasses on his head, waiting for the match to start. Yeah, Bret gives his sunglasses to his son Blade, who is sitting in the front row. Yes, Bret Hart actually named his son Blade. How does somebody named Blade Hart never find his way to WWE? That's amazing. That's maybe the greatest surprise of all. So we've got 60 minutes to fill here. Um, these kinds of matches were common in the pre-TV era, but have really faded um, once we got into about the 1980s. Um, Sting and Flair went 45 minutes at the first Clash of the Champions. Uh Flair and Steamboat nearly went 60 minutes at the Clash of the Champions in New Orleans in 89. Um, so it has been done on TV by Ric Flair. Yeah, by no one but Ric Flair. Um, Brett is kind of obviously going to work heel here. He's your veteran and he's the champion. I think it was Brett's idea to have no falls in 60 minutes. I get the appeal, but as we've established, that's just very dull. Yes, and look, I don't want to keep harping on this because there are people who genuinely love this match, people I respect, people who, I mean, you, you like this match. Like, I don't I want to say- It's a great athletic contest. Yes, I don't want to say that it's garbage because it's not. They structure it in that old school NWA way where like the heat builds over the course of the match. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is you don't have a real heel because people don't aren't booing Brett. So like the exchanges aren't really hot. And the other problem is you literally know that you can tune in in 45 minutes and just catch a nap in between. Yeah. And people are leaving. 
oh, this match bombs in the building. Bombs. The whole match, you can see people marching up the aisle and out yeah. to their cars. I'm not kidding. When they go to wide shots, which they stop doing later in the match, the upper bowl is mostly empty. Because, like, why would you stay? Yeah. No, these fans, they want to go get drunk. They came to see Warrior. They came to see Undertaker and Diesel. Like, they're good. They're done. Like, yeah, they it. Yeah. There's a reason why back in the day, they always put the like the work rate match either on last with Hogan in the middle and then the promise of Hogan at the end, or they put it in the middle so that people would actually stick around through the fucking match. Um, I did think the commentary was good. Like Vincent King for once, like actually called the match like a sporting event. Vince is so into this match. Yeah. Like it, it's very clear. Like Vince is a fanboy for this match and these two guys, and he is fanboying it up. And it feels more honest than the normal Vince commentary you get, doesn't it? Like you're getting like his actual reaction to stuff. Yeah. It's cool. It's interesting. Like, a really great match could kind of break through with Vince. Like Brett is the guy I can think of who did it the most. Like definitely Wembley Stadium. Vince really got into that match against Bulldog. Yeah. Vince famously is not really a huge fan of wrestling matches unless they take him on a ride. Like Vince is not the kind of guy who sits down and watches superstars for fun. Like he's not, he doesn't enjoy wrestling like that and he never did. And that pisses some people off, but He's in it for the story. That's all he cares about. First 10 minutes are all takedowns and holds. Uh, Sean gets Brett with a head scissor and then throws him to the floor. Uh, 15 minutes in, Brett hits a spine buster and goes for the sharpshooter, but Sean makes it to the ropes and Brett has to break. Sean stands up and he gets clotheslined over the top to the floor. Um Brett follows Sean to the floor and gets thrown into the ring post. Sean goes for sweet chin music, misses, and knocks the fuck out of the timekeeper. Fuck yeah. Uh, 25 minutes in, Sean hits an axe handle from the top rope. He gets Brett in a hammerlock and slams him. He works the arm for... Minutes and minutes on end here, which plays no role in this match. I would say that is your biggest flaw in terms of the psychology is this arm work goes nowhere. Brett just stops selling it. Totally pointless. Uh, 30 minutes in, Brett goes to the top rope. He hits some kind of move where he uses his knee to drive Sean's head into the match. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it looks pretty brutal, actually. Never really seen that before or since. Yeah, I like it a lot. Uh, that knocks down the referee. Sean hits a power slam for a close two count. Brett goes to the top again and gets thrown off. Sean hits a Hurricane Rana, but he doesn't get a pin out of it. There's a backbreaker by Sean. He sets up for sweet chin music. Brett bails out of the ring. Sean comes off the top rope with a huge crossbody all the way down to the floor. Awesome. Back in the ring, Sean hits another crossbody, but Brett rolls through for a two count. With 23 minutes left, Brett backdrops Sean over the top rope to the floor. This is a crazy bump. It looked like Sean went 10 feet in the air here. I fucking love this bump. Like, it's my favorite part of the entire match until the very end. 
Brett goes out. He picks Sean up, runs his back into the ring post. He throws Sean into the ring but doesn't cover him for some reason. Instead, he keeps working the back to set up the sharp sharpshooter. I think the most, like, another glaring flaw here, there's really been no good near falls to this point. Yeah, like, they're not really even trying to do near falls. Yeah, and I mean... I don't know if it's just because they know they're going a full hour without falls, so they're not really worrying about that. But it doesn't seem like they're taking into account the fact that people are actually watching this. Yeah, I mean, can't we have Brett get Sean in the sharpshooter and Sean makes the ropes? Can't we have Sean hit Brett with sweet chin music and Brett gets his foot on the ropes before three? Like, just something. It's kind of funny because WWE main event style as we understand it now didn't exist then. And these two are kind of inventing it from scratch. And, like, they're going to lay the groundwork here and in some of their other matches and stuff for what will eventually be what we understand to be, like, WWE main event style. But, like, they have no idea what the fuck they're doing with it here. They're just inventing it as they go. With 19 minutes left, Brett hits a huge back superplex, but it only gets two heavy boos for Sean's kick out. I don't know if that's people cheering Brett. I think they were actually just booing the lack of falls. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, Brett goes for a superplex, but Sean fights him off. Sean comes off the top, but gets uh, hit with a gut shot. Sean gets thrown into the corner. He does the flare bump down to the floor and knocks down Jose Lothario uh, in the process. Brett then throws Sean into the steps, which knocks down Jose again. Brett was more vicious in this match than I remembered. Brett was always at his best when he was vicious like that, which is a shame that he didn't do it more often, honestly. Um, As we go under 15 minutes, Brett continues to dominate. It is notable. The announcers never really play up the idea that, like, Brett doesn't have to beat Sean to retain. Right. Brett, you know, Brett is the champion will retain on a draw. It seems like they should be playing it up and you could make Brett more heelish by the fact that like, Oh, he's just going to run the clock out. Yeah. If Brett can just make it so that Michaels can't generate any offense, like he's going to win this match period. Um, series of reversals lead to a German suplex and a bridge from Brett. Sean kicks out at two, as we go under 10 minutes, Brett applies a chin lock. Um, that lasts for a little while. They've got to get their wind for the final stretch here. Yep. Um, six minutes left. Brett hits a huge superplex, but he can't make the cover. He applies a single leg crab, and Sean makes the ropes. Again, heavy boos. I think people are just booing the fact that there have been no falls. And I think they're just ready for it to be over. Yeah. <laughs> Five minutes left. Also, is, comes, is there a clock anywhere where the people can see it? That's a good question. I don't know if people know how much time is left. Yeah, I feel like they're just like, man, how the fuck longer does this have to go? It's not like they had a Titan Tron. God, I hope they had a clock in the arena. But yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. If they didn't, then that explains a lot of the crowd reaction. Um. Um, Brett comes off the top rope, but Sean gets his boots up and hits him in the face. 
Uh, with four minutes left, Brett hits the turnbuckle so hard it made me cringe. Mm-hmm. Sean, with the flying forearm, he somehow kips up after they've been wrestling for nearly an hour. With three minutes left, Sean hits a body slam, a double axe handle for a two count, then a snap suplex and the big elbow drop. Brett kicks out. With two minutes left. Sean hits a gut-wrench su- suplex and a moonsault for another two count. A diving Hurricane Rana from the top rope gets two for Sean. We've got 90 seconds to go. One minute left. Sean goes to the top rope. He goes for a missile drop kick, but Brett catches him out of the air into the sharpshooter. Awesome spot. That was the finish of their match. Um back at Survivor Series 1992, and this is when the crowd finally comes to life. Yeah, and like finally, because they get the automatic impression, as they should, that, oh shit, this is is for real. Like, we can actually pay attention now. Yeah. Brett cinches in the hold. The clock is running down. Sean refuses to give up. The clock runs out. Time has expired. We have a draw. Neither man has scored the fall. Bret Hart, as champion, retains the World Wrestling Federation title on the draw. Five more minutes. Said no one. (laughs) Bret takes the belt, goes to leave. Gorilla Monsoon gets in the ring and talks to Hebner. We then get the announcement for Hebner that this match has been ordered to continue under sudden death rules, first man to score a fall will win the title. There will be no time limit. Now, a couple things about this. Bret Hart has every right to feel, to turn into the bitter character that he does. Yeah. There's no precedent for this. This is bullshit. He gets fucked here. Yeah. Like, what like, are you talking about? Everybody knows the champion retains on a draw. Like, everybody knows that. And, like, literally, you explained all the rules beforehand. Never brought this one up. Hey, we can just change it if we feel like it. Yeah. So, he is unfairly ordered to get back in the ring. Um, Sean can barely stand, but he pops up and hits sweet chin music out of nowhere. Uh, They both struggle to their feet. Brett actually makes it to his feet first. But Sean nails him with sweet chin music again, makes the cover, gets the one, two, three. Sean Michaels, the World Wrestling Federation champion. Um, we get a kind of awkward moment where Brett is kind of you know mulling around in the ring. Sean turns to Earl Hebner, tells him, tell Brett to get the fuck out of my ring. Now. This is a famous moment because it's really what touches off the issue between these two guys, right? And I can kind of see both sides because from Sean's perspective, this is his moment. And he's supposed to be posing in there. And Brett's just kind of standing in the ring near him. Brett's Brett's trying to do a Hogan at WrestleMania 6. Yes. He's trying to be like, let me get my heat back by giving you the shaking hand. And then maybe I'll just walk off before we do it. But Sean's not interested in that. Sean's not having it. Yeah, this is Sean's moment. Get the fuck out of the ring, Brett. Nobody cares. And I mean, like, I kind of get both sides about that. But yeah, 
Brett is obviously upset as he leaves, and Brett's not that good of an actor. <laughs> yeah, Brett. So he stormed off without shaking hands. Like I think he literally just like grabbed his shit and like jumped in his car and drove off without showering. This the intention was to work the boys. They wanted to do like a worked shoot feud that made everybody think they actually disliked each other. They ended up working themselves into a shoot, as always seems to happen. Yeah. And here's the thing. This is what I mean when I say that the whole thing became so insular. It's like working the boys at a time when, like, the boys are, like, the only ones watching. Like, what is the point? And to this day, they still do this stuff. Like, they had Brock throw the belt at Vince at WrestleMania last year. Like, Yeah, like, who is that for? I mean, at least now people who are watching kind of understand that stuff enough that you can be working them too. But back in these days, nobody watching the show has any idea what the fuck any of this means. It's just for the boys so they can leak it to the newsletters. It's weird. That was the whole thing. They wanted to work the sheets, but like, yeah, 1% of their fan base is reading those at this point. It's just one of those things where you become so obsessed with the perception of what your company is that you don't realize that the people commenting on your company, the critics comprise like barely 1% of the actual audience you're going for. Yeah. It's just that wrestling bubble. You get trapped in it. You get trapped in it, man. And it happens. It happens to all of us at some point or another. Like you, you literally have to sit back sometimes and be like, man, that opinion that I have is so stupid. And I only have it because I'm just so obsessed with wrestling. I can't get past this idea that this matters. Oh, so I'd say the first half of that match was kind of boring. I thought the second half was fantastic. Like second the, half, just a plus work from both guys. The match literally never hooks me until overtime. So I, I can't even say that the second half is fantastic. It's good. It doesn't, I don't want to say that it sucks. It's not like the worst match of all time or anything. Like I'm not trying to make a take quite that hot. It just doesn't speak to me on any level. Like it's just so fundamentally heatless and the crowd is literally leaving in droves and like they don't really have a direction like so much of what they do doesn't actually wind up mattering and so it's it's fun to watch aesthetically but it doesn't mean anything until overtime like i, I always get that impression when i watch this yeah i mean i think we agree this would have been a better match without the iron man stipulation we've yes. been over that if this just happens to go 60 minutes i am on board totally I would have watched this match the first time with my jaw on the floor. Cause like, how can they still be going? <laughs> What's the longest match anybody's has anybody seen a 30 minute match at this point? I think literally as a wrestling fan at that point, the longest match I had ever seen was Flair versus, or was uh no, no, no. Uh, Savage versus Steamboat at WrestleMania three. Like, like 12 minutes long. I know, but like, it, <laughs> but yeah. Like, there had been longer matches with lots of schmas and stuff, but in terms of, like, pure work rate matches, it just, you never saw it. Like, my mouth, my jaw would have been on the floor, like, is this an option? At 20 minutes, it would have been like, holy shit, they're still going. Yeah. Ooh, so yeah, Sean gets his big crowning moment. Honestly, the crowd is not that hot for it. If anything, that cheapens the moment for Sean. Like, this doesn't put Sean over at all. Sean doesn't become the man because of this moment at all. Ugh. And the show goes off the air as Shawn Michaels has achieved the boyhood dream. It's come true. Hooray. 
You know when Vince McMahon keeps saying the boyhood dream has come true? You know he means his, right? Yes. Like this is Vince's dream to be the sexy superstar that all the women love winning the title at WrestleMania. Like, cause you know, Vince would have been a wrestler if his dad would have let him. Yeah. I mean, he finally became a wrestler when he was like 50. Yeah. Like this is Vince's dream. This moment. He says the boyhood dream has come true because he thinks it's everyone's dream because it's his. That's the importance of this moment. Oh, and that's a wrap for WrestleMania 12. At least we got through that. Yeah. Look, I hate this show. <laughs> this, to me, is the worst WrestleMania. It is. Wow. That is not a popular or widely held opinion, but I promise you it's not a contrarian one either. This show sucks. It's pretty I mean, it's pretty low. Like. Yeah. You think this, I mean, yeah, 11 was down there too. Like, we've just got two of the worst WrestleManias back to back. Yeah, we're in the miserable period where WrestleMania doesn't mean a damn thing. And it won't until it takes a lot of special things happening from Bret Austin having one of the greatest matches of all time to uh, the rise of Austin and The Rock and all of these guys. But it won't be until probably 17 until WrestleMania really means what it did. It, it takes a lot. Because right here, it's literally, it's arguably a lesser show than SummerSlam at this point. <laughs> oh, doesn't get a whole lot better next year Great. as we cover <laughs> WrestleMania 13, which at least has the amazing Bret Hart, Austin, Bret Hart, Steve Austin, I quit match, which might be my favorite wrestling match of all time. I have not seen it in a number of years, and I am very excited to see it again. Yeah. And also... The Undertaker versus Psycho Sid in the main event for the WWF title. Yes, that actually main evented WrestleMania. And if you think that we're going to have negative things to say about a Sid match, we may have to. Yeah, I think we have to in this case, unfortunately. We don't want to, though. And also, the WrestleMania debut of The Rock against The Sultan. 1997 WWF was a weird place. The Sultan did it for the Rock. <laughs> and uh, the Nation of Domination versus uh, the Legion of Doom and Ahmed Johnson in a Chicago street fight. Well, that actually sounds awesome. It was actually pretty good. Is that the one where Sonny is ridiculously hot? No, I don't think Sonny's on this show. Oh, damn it. Which one is that? It must be 14. Where she's like managing the Road Warriors and she's just Yeah, that's better. 14. LOD 2000. Oh, I can't wait till we get to that one. We did that one already. Oh, damn it. No! <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah. No Sunny next week, but lots to look forward to. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.